school, the court. Good morning. Please take your seats. In the matter of Her Majesty the Queen versus Patrick Dussault, for the appellant, Her Majesty the Queen, Justin Tremblay, and Isabel Bouchard, for the intervener, Attorney General of Ontario, David Michael Garg, and Natalia Odorico. For the respondent, Patrick Dussault, Celia Adjid, and Michel Marchand. For the intervener, Criminal Lawyers Association, Anil K. Kapoor, and Victoria Chichaluska. For the intervener, Association Québécoise des Avocats et Avocats de la Défense, Mary Springate. For the intervener, Association des Avocats de la Défense de Montréal-Laval-Longueuil, Jean-Philippe Marcoux and Jean-Sébastien Saint-Amand-Guinois. Please be advised, there is a publication ban in this matter at the lower court level. Mr. Tremblay or Ms. Bouchard. Chief Justice, I will be speaking first. Chief Justice, Justices, good morning. The first case involves two questions. First, whether the Court of Appeals intervention in the trial judge's findings of fact uh, is consistent with the standard of review applicable. Uh, accuse, excuse me for interrupting. I have a, f a couple of preliminary questions to ask. First, I see that the decision of Justice Aoli was rendered 17 months after the case was heard by the Court of Appeal. My question is, were there any requests for uh, rehearing? Is there anything to explain such a long delay? It was Ms. Bouchard who was uh, on the file at that point, but she said no, there were no such motions or requests. My second question, I understand that there is no reference to remedies under the criminal code, uh, independent of the question of the uh, validity. Of the, this is, was not put in issue? Yes, that's right. Okay. Go ahead. Okay, thank you. So the second issue uh, I mentioned was the right to counsel. In this case, did the police conduct make it reasonably possibly to believe make make it reasonably possible to believe that the right to counsel was incomplete? I will deal with the first issue and my colleague Ms. Bouchard will deal with the second. Our position is that the Court of Appeal intervene, interfered with the fact, factual findings of the trial judge, but that that was inconsistent with the applicable standard of review. 
and the there's a difference between the superior court and the court of appeal the court of appeal and uh, at the at the superior court the the trial judge found that the police were entitled to conclude that the right to counsel had been exhausted, whereas the Court of Appeal found otherwise. So Justice Ailey was Justice Healy was talking about uh, impugning motive, uh, uh, and are you saying that that's not supported by the evidence? Indeed. It's our position that the Court of Appeals finding that the that Mr. Dussault's constitutional rights were violated, his his right to counsel was violated. In terms of the Court of Appeals intervention, the standard is clear uh, when it comes to a finding of fact. Unlike the respondent, we are also of the view that the Court of Appeal did not limit itself to dealing with uh, a question of law. And I would refer you to tab one of our condensed book. I reproduced here on tab one. We reproduced paragraph 28 from the decision, and I would draw your attention to the sentence that begins with the difference, and so Justice Healy wrote, the difference between these two conclusions involves not only a question of fact, but a legal question about the purpose and scope of the appellant's right and the duties of the police under Section 10B. And now the last sentence of the paragraph, whether, whether there was a breach of the right to counsel is a question of law that is subject to review on a standard of correctness. So in this paragraph, the Court of Appeal appears to note that this matter raises a question of fact which it identifies in paragraph 19 of its decision and that is whether at the end of the first consultation the right to counsel was exhausted and paragraph 28 identifies the standard applicable but there is n total silence about the standard in the rest of the decision there is nothing that mentions the standard of review in despite of this in spite of this in our factum, in paragraphs 44 and 45, there's a more exhaustive exercise which identifies the factual, the, intervene, the, the interventions or the intrusions, interference with the trial judge's findings of fact. But at tab two, I'd like to draw your attention to three elements that, in our view, illustrate this interference by the Court of Appeal and where the Court of Appeal did not respect the applicable standard of review. So the table you find at tab 2 is a contrast between the Court of Appeal decision and the Superior Court decision. And so in paragraph 17, in bold, it says, the police declined to inform him. And there was some suggestion that the police refused to tell the accused that his counsel was present at the, court, at the police station. So if the Court of Appeals said the police declined to inform him, uh, isn't the evidence contradictory 
because the accused did ask a few times whether his lawyer had arrived, whether he had a right or not, just on the facts. Is it true that the, is it not challenged that the accused did ask a few times whether his lawyer had arrived? Yes, indeed, he did ask. And it makes sense because he believed that his lawyer was going to be there for the, what he would call the meeting. And if the police answered those questions, if, did the police answer those questions? Yes, he's here. Was there any answer? No, there was no answer. And that's the first example I'd like this, what this example shows is the first question from when Mr. Dussault asked, he, it was 8.52 p.m. and the lawyer was no longer there. So Mr. Dussault was taking that opportunity or the police were using that opportunity to find out why, he, why the accused was asking, why the accused wanted to know whether his lawyer was there because there was some ambiguousness about the need for the lawyer. So there was no specific answer to the question, but if there had been a specific answer at 8.52 p.m., the police would have had to say, no, your lawyer is no longer here. And there was a risk that there would be some denigration of the lawyer's work because the accused expected his lawyer to be there. And if the police officer said, no, your lawyer took off, your lawyer left, that might have uh, put the accused in a more delicate state of mind than he already was. Yes, but on this whole issue of denigration or undermining counsel, could the police officer not have answered, yes, he showed up, but we told him he couldn't see you. In our view, that would not have been a prudent answer from Detective Shiquan because the lawyer said, look, I'll be there, I, I'm going to come and meet with you. And if the police officer said, no, he can't meet with you, we're not going to give him access, would that not cast a doubt over the quality of the assistance of counsel? Uh, because Mr. Shiquan was in a, a particularly delicate situation, given the ambiguity about the need for him to be, for the lawyer to be there. So it might have been what what I understand is that the lawyer being there. The lawyer said, I'm not the one who asked for him to be here. My lawyer wants to be here. It's his idea. That's right. That's what the evidence shows, Chief Justice. Mr. Tremblay, we read your factum and we understand your point that the emphasis on police conduct at the Court of Appeal level is not what the trial judge put the emphasis on. So let's accept, for the sake of discussion, let's assume you're right. Let's assume that the Court of Appeal put too much emphasis on the misrepresentations from the police. First of all, you yourself concede in paragraph 67 that the police dodged some questions, they avoided answering, They're, they perhaps weren't exhibiting exemplary behavior, model behavior, perhaps their conduct wasn't the best. But I'm just wondering, 
given this dissonance, is that not the crux of the matter here? Is that not what this issue is all about? The scope of consultation, the, the telephone consultation with the lawyer, which was cut off or interrupted by the conversation between Mr. Shiquan and Mr. Benoit, and the lawyer made a request, and Mr. Shiquan said, no problem. So, and you have a different reading of the situation than the respondent and the Court of Appeal had, a different reading of that. You say there was no agreement with counsel. You said that in paragraph 20 of your factum, whereas the respondent sees things differently. The respondent feels that the consultation was interrupted or cut off. And the respondent goes even further and says, you're distorting reality by saying that the respondent wasn't even interested in seeing his lawyer. So is that not the crux of this matter? Is that not the, the very heart of the problem before us today? And I ask myself, if Mr. Benoit had been rejected, if the, if the police officer had said no, no way, instead of no problem, then what would have happened? Would the consultation have continued on the phone? Because the police officer did give the phone back to the respondent. So how important, how, what's the significance of the police officer saying no problem when the lawyer said he wanted to come to the police station? In our opinion, there is a problem if the factual premise is that during the first eight, nine minutes of the consultation, it wasn't completed. But the reality, in our opinion, is that the facts do not allow us to infer that legal assistance was not completed during the first eight to nine minutes. Therefore, we must also consider that even though the first time the police officer says no problem or okay, Oh, it's okay, it's all right. Faced with the ambiguity in our opinion that was raised by the lawyer who says, I would like to meet my client without providing any further investigation. If there was any ambiguity at that point, the police officer corrected that when he recalls the lawyer again and he says no, categorically, and the lawyer doesn't seize that opportunity to say, well, he's not understanding. I have not yet uh, read him his rights. I need to talk to him. I thought I would be able to do that in person. Can I call him back? He didn't say any of that. So the ambiguity is raised in the mind of the police officer. So if we were to accept the factual premise, I will come back to tab three later. But in my opinion, during the first eight to nine minutes, after the first eight to nine minutes, the consultation was completed, and that is what the judge said, and that is what the evidence provided by Voadi uh, confirms. I would like you right away to turn to chapter three of my condensed book. I believe it has to do with your question, uh, Justice Katsira, and it could also reassure you that the consultation 
was completed before the telephone conversation was interrupted. Here, we have re revisited the paragraphs of the Court of Appeal decision. Um, and and some facts that were not assessed by the Court of Appeal, the client doesn't say that he doesn't understand his right to silence. It, in paragraph 171, the judge says that during the testimony, the lawyer doesn't say that the right to silence wasn't explained. And he talks about the impression he had about the client's something that was never communicated to the police officer. Paragraph 179, Mr. Tremblay saying that it's the lawyer who decided to, to come to the police officer. But, but the, even though he's the one who made that request, the client accepted and he took it for granted that the lawyer will be coming to the police officer. Yes, indeed. But you cannot ask the client whether or not the lawyer has the right to be present. I'm not talking about the right to be present during an interview. I'm talking of coming to the police station to give him more advice. I'm not talking about the interview. I'm talking about his presence before the interview starts. The accused had the impression that his counsel was coming to the police officer to con continue the consultation. I do not believe that is what the evidence on file reveals. Dussault says the lawyer was supposed to be there during the interview and was surprised that the lawyer was not there. So it's not about any additional advice. The evidence shows that Mr. Benoit wanted to talk about interview techniques. That's not the main subject of 10B, the evidence doesn't show that. Counsel, if we were to accept, I'm not accepting it anyway, if we were to accept that, explain, the explanation to the right to silence, was done during consultation. Is there not a problem here? Since Mr. Dussault was led to believe that he would have the opportunity to consult his legal counsel once again. Could the police unilaterally change its opinion and block that consultation without any explanation? Answer, I would say that if the lawyer suggests during the telephone consultation that he would appear and he sheds some doubt in the mind of the client who believes that he could be there during inter the interview. The police officers can't do anything about that. The police officers never suggested to the client that there will be legal counsel present during the interview. Similarly, 
there is no circumstance or no fact arising from the respondent detained at the time who thought, who was made to think that the circumstances of his detention had changed. If the lawyer decides to end the consultation after saying what he had to say, he may be imprudent. What is important to know is that it's not the police officers that ended that consultation. It is Mr. Dussault, the lawyer, who hung up. So we cannot blame the police officer for taking the positive action of suspending the consultation or suggesting to the client that there will be a second consultation. But if afterwards, after the police confirmed that the police officer could come, I'm not sure about that. What I know is that the evidence shows that the lawyer offered that he would show up and the client accepted. But in the mind of the client, from what we see in the evidence, is that he believed that the lawyer was going to be there during the interview. And as I said, this is ambiguity that is created by what the lawyer said. And that was a delicate situation to correct. If there was any doubt as to the sufficiency of the legal assistance provided by the lawyer, Mr. Benoit had three opportunities to say there's a problem here. There is a problem. He never did that. The only time, well, he left a note saying the consultation was not completed. Answer. He said legal consultation was done partially, but that doesn't mean much for us. He's referring the situation what? to him. The right to legal assistance is partially completed, but that doesn't mean much to us. But in his interview, he clearly explains why he's offering to come meet the client because the communication wasn't going on properly and he felt that the client wasn't properly understanding his right to silence. That's what Mr. Benoit explained. Exactly. That is afterwards. And he is saying that what he needed to complete was interrogation techniques. And I'll conclude on that. But paragraph 187 and 188 are decisive in tab 3. In 187, the trial judge says that the, tri the tribunal is convinced that Mr. Benoit clearly explained his right to silence to his client and he clearly understood. In Psalm 88, the evidence shows that the accused understood the right and he exercised it strategically during the interview. So we cannot say that the assistance was, was not complete if in the facts, the tribunal that assessed the facts feels that that the rights were understood and were strategically used. So we feel that the Court of Appeal does not respect the standard when it comes to the circumstances. When it comes, arrives at its findings. Unless the scope of the obligation under 10B be different. You say that the tribunal was convinced, the accused was convinced. The tribunal is convinced that the accused understood counsel, uh, the advice of the counsel. 
Let me ask you this question. If the obligation to consult under 10B covers a lot more than that, can't we argue that possibly the consultation was not completed if indeed it's not limited to what is traditionally considered as the right to consult legal counsel? If the scope of law is revised, if we were to go further than what we see in case law, there could have been a problem. But in looking at the facts, that was not the case. Even if we realized that the scope was broader, the facts show that the police officer was never informed, be it by the accused or his lawyer, that consultation was insufficient or inadequate. The fact that he says that the consultation was partial is not enough, especially when a police officer finds himself in a delicate situation. The police officer tries to get information from Mr. Dussault, and he says it's the lawyer who wanted to be there. So we cannot ask the police officer to to interfere in the privileged uh, relationship that exists between the lawyer and the client to find out what was said, whether it's sufficient, whether it corresponds to the scope of law. It takes application of current law, but if there's no change in circumstances that suggests that a second consultation is required, then the obligation was respected. Mr. Tremblay, let me follow up on the question asked by the Chief Justice. The idea that the right to 10B, I'm not talking about the further consultation. During the first consultation by Sinclair, by Sinclair, in the Sinclair case, it talks about the right to legal counsel. Looking at the facts before us in this case, there was indication or a suggestion was made to the accused that he had a useful choice to make to cooperate in the investigation. So when Mr. Benoit talks about the fact that he would have liked to explain interview techniques to him for him to protect his right to choose to cooperate or not. He says he doesn't do he did not do it or did not or did it only partially. In your opinion, did the trial judge dwell on that in paragraphs one eighty seven and one eighty eight when focus is only on the right to silence? Benoit la première the problem is that the first time Mr. Benoit talked about uh, how he wanted to round out his consultation was at the voir dire. Well, there's, there's a solicitor-client privilege. He can't tell the police everything. No, that's not what I'm saying, Justice Kazer. What I'm saying 
is that if counsel's convinced that his client doesn't understand and needs further explanation, I don't think it's any breach of confi confidentiality for him to tell the police, I'm con I don't think my client understands, I need to come to the police station to explain things. I think th th that the, the lawyer has that responsibility and, the, and can go that far without any breach of professional conduct because here, all of that was only learned at the voir dire and it would not be proper or fair to uh, judge the police and their conduct on the basis of facts that were not known to them at the time. The trial judge said that counsel spoke to the police officer and said he was coming to see his client at the police station. He asked for the investigation to be suspended and the police officer said no problem. So that's an initial indication that the counsel, there's something he wants to do, there's something he wants to finish, and the sergeant detective said no problem. In paragraph 136, after the officer said no problem, if you go to 136 of the trial decision, the accused took the phone back and the counsel said don't move, don't speak to anyone, and so he understood that he was not to speak of the events and believed that his counsel was coming to meet with him. So when you say that it was only at the voir dire that the lawyer expressed anything, I think after the phone conversation with the sergeant detective, he, the counsel said, I'm going to come and meet with my client. The detective said, no problem. And then the lawyer said to counsel, don't move. I'm coming. I'll come and see you. Uh, and, and he did, but was never allowed to see his client. Yes, that's true, but that does not lead us, in our view, inevitably to the conclusion that the right to counsel was incomplete. In order for that to, for there to be a requirement for a second consultation, there would have to be something, some objectively observable fact. So, we're not, it might not indicate that a second consultation is needed, but could it not indicate that a first consultation was incomplete? If the officer says, no problem, come on over, then it's not complete. Well, given the gravity of the charges, the counsel said, I want to come and meet with my client. So that's ambiguous. The need for the counsel to uh, come and meet with the client in person, it's, it's unclear what the need was. And the and counsel did not take the opportunity to say, just a minute, I have more to tell my client. Uh, I'm not finished. And when the when counsel did arrive at the police station, the ambiguity continued because he left a note saying, I partially I uh, inform informed my client, but there was no change in circumstances of the detainee. And in fact, the detainee said, no, it's my lawyer who wants to be here. He's the one who wanted to be here for this meeting. So counsel was creating ambiguities in his client's mind. But the police officer, the police are not responsible for that. They granted the accused his constitutional right. If you don't have any other questions, I'd like to turn the floor over to my colleague, Ms. Bouchard. Yes, good morning. 
Good morning, Chief Justice and Justices. Look, a number of the points I was going to cover were covered by my colleague in response to your questions, but I'd like to go back over three important points. First of all, the scope of the constitutional protection under 10b, and I believe it was you, Chief Justice, who referred to this in your question. So, currently, in Canadian law, this has established the scope of that provision and in paragraphs 30 and 20 and 38 of the Sinclair decision the court held that the scope of 10b was broader the person had to be the uh, a client uh, an accused had to be informed on how to how to um deal with police questioning. The minority felt one way, but the majority did not. The majority felt that the protection under 10b was simply to explain to the accused what his or her rights were. And the this court's definition of the right in Sinclair does not include police interrogation techniques or questioning techniques. That's the first point I wanted to make. The scope does not extend that far. Secondly, when a trial judge has determined or when there's a determination of a violation of 10b, is the yeah. evidence to be, should the evidence be based, the, the factual finding be based on the, how the police behaved or should it be based on what comes out at the voir dire? Which of these situations? Is it the evidence at the voir dire where counsel for the first time discloses the contents of his exchanges with the accused or is it the behavior of the accused during those calls, the things he said while he was waiting for his lawyer to show up for the meeting? Repeatedly, the police were, they were obviously monitoring Mr. Dussault all throughout his detention. So from the very first phone call, and they, they asked him questions, is everything okay? Yeah, everything's fine. Yeah. So uh, he asked for cigarettes, he asked how his uh, partner was doing. Uh, he didn't ask anything about counsel. And he certainly didn't ask when, can you tell me when my lawyer gets here? And when asked in practical terms, do you want him to be there? Mr. Dussault answered, no, I don't want him to be here. He want, he's the one who wants to be here. So I think, I think that needs to be taken into account in assessing whether there was the right to counsel. We don't have Miranda rules like in the U.S. here in Canada yet. So the scope of the protection of 10b uh, when a person's detained uh, and they consult via telephone uh, the the consultation the, the the right to counsel has to do with helping the accused decide whether or not to cooperate with the police investigation miss bouchard just before you go any further um, Justice Brown raised a contradiction because M Mr. Benoit, the lawyer, left a note 
and the trial judge in paragraph 174 noted that there was a contradiction between Mr. Benoit's testimony at the voir dire and the contents of his note. At the voir dire, he emphasized his client's misunderstanding of his rights, whereas in the note, he said that apparently that the right to counsel was not uh, complete, that it was only partially complete. The Court of Appeal did not deal with that contradiction, but the trial judge focused on it. So is there truly a contradiction between the two? Because that's another way of asking the question. What, what is the content of 10b, in a sense? What do you make of it? I agree with you, Justice Kesserer, to answer your question. When Mr. Benoit testified at the voir dire, he explained the circumstances leading to his writing of the note uh, at three and a half hours after his initial call with his client. So when he testified at the voir dire, he was asked questions about the circumstances, how his client was responding to the initial consultation, and he explained why he wrote the note. But when you look closely at that examination, in cross-examination, Mr. Benoit said he had completed his professional, he had discharged his professional duties to his client, but the only thing he left out was the police questioning techniques. So I think that's why Justice DeSalvo focused on that uh, contradiction and mentioned it in her reasons. It was because, because the constitutional guarantee does not include police techniques, well then the right to counsel was exhausted. So counsel had already done everything else. He had that feeling that maybe his client didn't understand everything, but he never expressed that to the police. He never expressed that to anyone, to those responsible for gathering objective facts, observable objective facts, while the accused was in detention. And Mr. Dussault, all throughout his detention, obviously there was a police investigation going on. He wanted to know how his partner was doing. He wanted cigarettes and so on. But the police, meanwhile, were working on solving a crime, a murder. But the police were also having to inquire into the right to counsel. As soon as a client enters into, a con into contact with a lawyer who he didn't even know, Mr. Benoit, the police are aware and sensitive to his right to counsel, Mr. Dussault's right to counsel. And they're... The, they can't ask questions that infringe upon a solicitor-client privilege. So they have to respect solicitor-client privilege while at the same time being sensitive to the right to counsel. So they don't have a lot of room to maneuver. And the Court of Appeal is saying that the police should have known that the first consultation was incomplete because Mr. Benoit was thinking this or thinking that. Well, the police could not have known what Mr. Benoit was thinking. And to answer my overlong, to complete my overlong answer to you, the right to counsel 
the, what is the scope of the right to counsel in Canada? Is it what you said in 2010, that the police observe the detainee, his behavior, what he says about the counsel he's received, and also uh, his right to silence? And in this case, the Court of Appeal at no point considered how Patrick Dussault made strategic use of his right to silence during his questioning. He asked questions about his partner, but otherwise he refused to answer up and until he was confronted with the overwhelming case against him. And only then did he start talking about the fact that the victim was paying him money or not, not paying him and that he'd visited her and so on. So are we changing our way of looking at things? Are we going to toss aside the, Saint, the Sinclair principles which was about objectively observable facts, for example, that the detainee hadn't received full counsel or there'd been a change in circumstances requiring a second consultation. And uh, I think Justice Brown mentioned this earlier, an interrupted conversation that needs to be finished versus a second consultation, I think here we have to ask the question, was the consultation sufficient or complete in this case? From the perspective of the police, uh, when the police were observing the detainee, there was nothing to suggest to them that the consultation was incomplete. And they even asked Mr. Dussault questions to, to, to elicit whether he was satisfied. And the only answer they got was, it's my lawyer who wanted to be here for the meeting. And I would wrap up on that, Honorable Justices. So the continued, continued assistance of counsel is not required in Canada by this court, uh, unlike other countries. And the respondent in this case is attempting, with the Court of Appeals decision in support, to argue that because counsel asked to come to the police station and asked to meet with his client, that should have been granted. But that's not the issue. The issue is the evening of that phone call, was the consultation complete? And the accused made use of his right to silence strategically. So in our view, the consultation was complete. The right to counsel was exhausted. And we would ask that you restore the guilty verdict uh, of the jury and quash the Court of Appeals decision without any possibility of parole before two years for Mr. Dussault. Thank you. Well, I have one last question. Perhaps it's redundant, but it fo follows up on my colleague Justice Kazerer's question. If we were to delimit the scope, because you talked about Sinclair and the minority deci decision of Justice Fish in that case, or Bish in that case, the minority wanted to extend the scope of 10B, the majority rejected that. So my question is, can we define the scope of that duty, or the right, rather, the right to counsel? Can we define the scope of it and how you satisfy it? Have you said in Sinclair and other cases, legal assistance should be given to the to an accused so that the person can decide whether or not to collaborate with the police. 
but not necessarily on how the person should respond to questions. The person's right to silence should be explained. The impact should be explained. Of course, when the person, or rather the legal counsel has to make sure that the accused understands the charges and the consequences, of course. Of course, he has to make sure that the accused understands, he knows the extent of the charges. Often, and I'm speaking for myself, when we are dealing with murder charges, we have people calling us to say, well, there's somebody whose mental state is a specific, a lawyer calls us, and we have to make sure of all those things. So under 10B, the lawyer has to lead the accused to make the choice of whether they want to collaborate or not. And sometimes when the police officers want to apply or a warrant for DNA and so on, all techniques have to be explained and the use of those techniques, all those things have to be explained to establish the power balance between the person and the state. So the lawyer comes to explain to the accused all those things so that the accused can make an informed choice. It's not about, and I'm going to use the expression that was used in trial court, it's not a 101 course on police interrogation that has to be provided. That did not have to be the extent of 10B. I have one last question. If we were to assume that the respondent were right in this case, the evidence that arises from the accused statement during his interview, should that be excluded under 24-2? As we said in the Quebec Court of Appeal, I believe that it goes without saying that that evidence should be excluded. Thank you. My pleasure. We'll take a morning uh, uh, break, 15 minutes. Thank you. Thank you. Please be seated. Justices. On behalf of the Attorney General of Ontario, my submission for today is that there is no need for drastic changes to 10B law, specifically in regards to the time frame at issue in this case, which is the point after which a detainee has begun consulting with counsel. 
a bridge can be built across this court's jurisprudence to provide police with one test to apply on when their implementational duties renew, while maintaining Canada's leadership in equipping individuals with robust protections throughout their dealings with police. It's helpful to start by looking at how the Quebec Court of Appeal framed the issue in this case, which was to ask, is this a case where police needed to allow the consultation to continue in order to be complete? Or is this a case where police needed to allow reconsultation with counsel? Our proposal is to merge these two questions into one by reading this court's jurisprudence as providing one test in the following manner. When police believe the detainee is consulting with counsel, they facilitate the opportunity for the detainee to receive legal advice on their rights and obligations, including the right to silence. And police can assume that the detainee received that legal advice, advice relevant to their choice on whether to cooperate with the investigation. This assumption is the key because police implementational duties renew whenever objective indicators would cause this assumption to crumble. To illustrate, um, say a detainee gets off the phone with counsel and uh, 15 minutes go by and he tells the police, hey, I don't know what happened there. I was on the phone with the lawyer and mid-sentence the line got cut. Police should not be trying to figure out whether this means the consultation was incomplete or inadequate or insufficient as though those are three separate standards. Instead, the detainee was diligent in conveying a problem and the question the police must ask is whether they can still assume that the detainee had the opportunity to receive information relevant to his choice on whether to cooperate. And we can see that from Bartle into Willier and Sinclair. I have two I, I, points. You just said the magic word, opportunity, because there's a difference between saying the police must ensure there's an opportunity versus somehow assuring a particular content or adequacy which is really sort of what's been suggested to us by others. Uh, yes, Justice Rowe, that is um, uh, the thrust of our submission is that 10B can only impose obligations on the state. Uh, that's right in section 32 of the charter and, and longstanding in this court's jurisprudence. So a 10B approach must keep obligations and decisions on the state, which will normally be the police in these circumstances. They are the ones required to discharge informational and implementational duties. That was made explicit by Chief Justice Lemaire in, in Bartle. Police are not in a position to determine whether a consultation was effective or adequate, and 10B imposes no duty on them to do so. Instead, the framework must keep the analysis focused on factors within their knowledge and decisions within their control. My final point is that is going back to why this, this, there's only one test on when police implementational duties renew is, is to keep the framework simple, simple. This court recognized in Subaru that a workable Tembi framework means providing police with stable, well-defined routes to implementing rights to counsel. Tembi law is already quite complex. Police need to navigate a multifaceted decision tree to get to the point of putting a detainee on the phone with counsel. 
And so when we're now at that point where the detainee is, is consulting, a workable framework means keeping the additional decisions to a minimum. Subject to any questions, those are our respectful submissions. Thank you very much. Maître Adid. Ms. Adid. Chief Justice, Justices, good morning. On the standard of review, I suggest we start with uh, the appellant's first question. They claim that the Court of Appeal interfered with findings of fact when it wasn't entitled to, but the respondent says that this was a question of law which is subject to the standard of correctness. It's important to start by analyzing the trial decision because that's at the very basis of what the findings of fact were. Basically, as some of you have mentioned, the trial judge did not reject the fact that the counsel, the advice was cut off and then there was an okay, no problem from Mr. Shikwan, and so there was an expectation that they would meet again. That's the crux of the matter. Even the appellant this morning was arguing that the fact that the contact was suspended, that is immaterial at law. The appellant felt that what was mattered was what was said during the first eight or nine minutes of consultation. That was sufficient to conclude that the right to counsel had been exhausted. The respondent argues that uh, that has to be taken for granted, that the consultation was suspended and there was an expectation among the lawyer and the accused, between both of them, that they would be allowed to meet again. That's a fact that the trial judge found as well as the Court of Appeal. Counsel, are you asking us to change the Sinclair test today? Absolutely not. So you agree that the duty or the scope of the consultation is limited. You're not asking us to allow uh, counsel to have the right to explain various police techniques and so on. Well, as a matter of fact, what Sinclair says the main rule under Sinclair is that there's an assumption that one phone call is enough to exercise the right to counsel, sufficient counsel. The majority in Sinclair denied that the physical presence of counsel during questioning is, was a right in Canada. And in Sinclair, Justice Binney took a middle-of-the-road position. He said that one call is generally sufficient, but suggested a test that would allow police officers and the detainee to revive or, or create a renewed right to counsel, uh, to further consultation. Uh, and the rest of the minority argued a continuous right so Sinclair is the current state of the law. The position of the majority in Sinclair is the state of the law. 
They never said, though, that the right is limited to the right to silence. Sinclair mentions that legal advice should enable the accused to make an enlightened choice about whether or not to cooperate with the police in their investigation. And the right includes uh, providing the accused with the information he needs to make an enlightened choice. Well, that, that puts us in a bit of a funny position because if you put yourself in the shoes of the lawyer at the time when he's giving advice to the client, that's confidential. It's just between the solicitor and the client. The police don't know the content of that advice. And when there's a, a, a matter like the one we're dealing with here, the police only learn at the voir dire what was said and why one party thought that the consultation was complete and the other party didn't. So what I get from this case is that that evidence at the voir dire indicated that the accused not only understood his counsel's instructions, but even used that, followed that advice and exercised his right to silence at times and then and that he used it strategically and that it was counsel who wanted to meet with the accused and not the other way around. Well, there are a number of sub-questions to your question. First of all, the situation can perhaps be divided in two. First of all, there's the okay, no problem coming from Sergeant Detective Shiquan, which caused the phone call to come to an end. So Sinclair does allow for extra consultations as needed, when needed, but in this case, there's no, there's nothing in Sinclair that says what needs to be said or not be said. There's no, uh, there's no specificity about the content of the consultation, but the advice has to be broad, broad enough to allow the accused to make a choice. So to answer your question, first of all, there was the okay from the police officer, and that's what led to the whole rest of the situation. And secondly, from that perspective, regardless of what had already been said or not, the first consultation was not over. It was not complete. So, as you mentioned, it's a confidential communication between the lawyer and his client, and n n neither the, can the counsel divulge the contents, but the police cannot inquire into the contents of the consultation either and make a value judgment about whether or not the consultation was complete yeah. or sufficient. So, as a, call, a corollary, the lawyer is independent, is an officer of the court, uh, uh, an officer of justice, and the lawyer can make a decision as to whether or not the consultation was complete. So the second part of your question was the scope of the right to counsel. What is the scope of the right to counsel? Mr. Benoit indicated that he said to his client that he had the right to silence, to, re to remain silent, uh, and anything he did say could be used against him. But there were some things missing from that. F he explained that he didn't get the feeling that the message was getting across. 
during the first telephone call. So he didn't feel like the message was being received by his client. He also said at the voir dire that he spoke to his client about the right to silence but wasn't able to raise the other options available. For example, the, op the option of speaking because in some circumstances speaking to the police can be beneficial. He also didn't get a chance to broach police questioning techniques and he said that it's important when people say you have the right to silence the, the well precisely the best way of testing that by definition is the evidence in the voir dire and the trial judge made some findings of fact she referred to the evidence which the court of appeal ignored in a very few paragraphs but that's the best way to know what happened to know whether the accused on the facts did in fact exercise his right and follow counsel's advice and the trial judge said yes the evidence shows that Mr. Dusso did understand and did follow counsel's advice how was the Court of Appeal able to overturn that? Well first of all when it comes to the trial decision when the judge said that the detainee understood his rights she is limiting herself to the right to silence so in her view the fact that the tele no no excuse me that's not what she said she said that in some circumstances the accused knew full well what the limit of his rights were because at times he cooperated at times he answered questions but other times he repeatedly said no I'm deciding to exercise my right to silence I'm not going to answer your question so in other words he understood the game he got it yes but the judge felt that the right to counsel was simply limited to instructing the client about the right to silence because she referred repeatedly to uh, what was contained when the police officer when they read him his rights what they said and he indicated that he understood so he understood that he had the right to silence and then she said that during the questioning he repeatedly answered that he wanted to remain silent so he understood it and used it strategically but with all due respect during the questioning the right to counsel had already been violated that, 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 that had already occurred so if you put yourself in the police officers shoes they couldn't know what counsel covered or failed to cover during the phone call. What they did know was that they allowed the lawyer to come and then decided after the fact unilaterally not to let the lawyer see his client. And they did not inform the detainee. The detainee was kept in the dark about that. And the trial judge says he seems to have understood his right to silence. Well, that's partially a question of law. What does the right to counsel include? Is it just the right to remain silent or does it cover other things? Because it's just the right to remain silent, then you could find, as she did, that he knew he could remain silent. But if you consider that the right to counsel includes enabling the accused to make a, a useful choice, well, why did he make choices 
at times during questioning to answer questions and in other, uh, at other times he refused to cooperate. So he was making choices all along. Yes, he was making choices, but the choice has to be informed, enlightened. And so in this case, the, the lawyer said there was a bunch of information that he didn't get a chance to share with his client. Of course, the, the client is still going to make choices, but are those enlightened, useful choices? Because, for example, do we know why he was remaining silent? Was it, was it explained to him that sometimes lying is worse than remaining silent? So whether or not the accused was making choices, you can't say that those choices were enlightened or informed, and all the more so because two years before the questioning began, the lawyer had written a note to the police saying, my advice was only partial. The consultation was not complete. And this is, the, the police officer ignored that. The same police officer who said, no problem, you can come to the police station. So we're talking about a police officer who knew all the way through what the lawyer was attempting to do and, in, and the, all the surrounding circumstances. So Mr. Dussault, the, the, the appellant faulted Mr. Dussault for failing to, well, they faulted him for not being loquacious enough about his need for counsel or for not demanding to see his lawyer. Uh, but Mr. Dussault, having heard the police officer agree to the lawyer's suggestion that he would come to the police station to meet with his client, is it not legitimate that he had an expectation that he would be able to consult with his lawyer again? Well, what do you make of his statement when he said, no, no, it's all fine. I'm not the one who wanted to see my lawyer. He's the one who wanted to see me. What do you make of that? Well, he was never clearly asked, do you need to see your lawyer again? He, when he asked, is my lawyer here yet? The police officer said, the first thing he said was, oh, was he supposed to be here? So they acted like they had no idea what he was talking about. And then he said, well, I don't know if he's going to call back, but he told me he was coming. But they left him in the dark. And when he answered, as you mentioned, uh, the question is not, do you, the question was not, uh, do you need your lawyer? They said, well, did you ask him to be here? And he says, no, it was his idea to be here. So that's perfectly reasonable. And at any rate, the lawyer had been mandated to come. And the detainee said, yes, he, he, he granted permission for the lawyer to come. So the idea was the lawyer's. So there is a nuance there, but the detainee agreed to it. So I don't think you can ignore the whole context and the circumstances. The lawyer, from the, from the very beginning, asked to see the client. So there's a domino effect. I'd like to ask a question about the issue of Sergeant Detect Detective Sergeant Shi Quan.
because he asked Mr. Dussault if he was the one who asked for his lawyer to be there. I'd like to know, is that an important question? What turns on the answer to that question, first of all? And secondly, it seems to me that this is a question that uh, really goes to the confidentiality of the conversation between lawyer and client. It, it goes to the content of what was said between the two of them. Absolutely. Knowing who suggested what really doesn't matter under the circumstances. And obviously there's an issue of confidentiality. The appellant is arguing, and at all levels, argued both that the lawyer wasn't clear enough and didn't give enough details when he wrote the note saying that the consultation had only been partially completed, the, the appellant is saying the lawyer should have given us more detail. But on the other hand, they're saying, well, we don't want to know what the, what the contents of the consultation were. Uh, we don't want to get into solicitor-client privilege. But anyway, the answer to the question changes nothing. The question should have been, do you need your lawyer? Here. Why was he not asked a direct question, a head-on, clear question, and get a clear answer about what his intentions were, what his needs were? The police wanted to hide things from the respondent. The lawyer waited for two hours in a room while the detainee was sleeping or smoking and Okay, the lawyer knew that his client was in detention, but the client was never made aware that his lawyer was there on site. Why? Why did they not go tell the respondent, look, we agreed to this earlier, but we've changed our mind. Why not? And th they also asked ambiguous questions like, are you the one who wanted your lawyer to be here? It's because they didn't want to know the answer. They didn't want an official request made. They wanted to avoid that. They tried to create ambiguity, ambiguity which the appellant is trying to put onto the lawyer's shoulders, but this is an ambiguity that the appellant maintained deliberately from start to finish. Counsel, uh, Ms. Adid, I'd like to ask the same question that I asked earlier of the appellant about the note and the contradiction that the trial judge raised at paragraph 174 and the respondent deals with this in in your factum saying that the the appellant rather says that the court of appeal placed undue emphasis on the note and didn't address the contradiction between the note and the position that counsel had taken at the voir dire his testimony, rather, at the voir dire. So he said that at the voir dire that he was concerned about his client's understanding of his rights. What do you have to say about that? Well, as a matter of fact, the answer to that may be related to the fact that the question before the Court of Appeal is indeed a question of law in the sense that it's true 
that when you look at the summary of the testimony done by the trial judge, she never mentioned that this or that was not credible or probative. But the only thing she focuses on is that contradiction. And that contradiction stems from her limited view, her narrow view of the right to counsel. If the right to counsel is limited to you have the right to remain silent, anything you say can and will be used against you, if that's the limit of the right, then the trial judge was right. But if you see that there's more to 10b than informing the accused of his right to remain silent, then no, there's no contradiction because it's undisputed that Mr. Benoit said to the respondent that he had the right to remain silent and the judge and the police could, uh, could not hold that against him, his silence against him. But there's a whole bunch of explanations that were not given. So the question of law is not just the purpose but also the scope of 10b. The contradiction stems from the trial judge's decision on the scope of 10b. Mr. Benoit said that he explained the right to silence and that silence could not be held against him and that uh, but Justice Healy in his decision in paragraph 19 says the end of the telephone call uh, with Ms. Maitre Benoit, the appellant had exercised his right to counsel. This conclusion is the central factual issue in the present case. Oui, but en fait, uh... Yes, but in fact, if you read a little further on, she says in paragraph 28, it's essential to the disposition of this case to determine whether the phone call satisfies 10b, etc. And at the end of the paragraph, she says, this involves not only a question of fact, but also a question of law with respect to the scope of the right and the duty of the police under 10b. That is a question of law subject to a standard of correctness review. So, the, if there was any confusion, the end of the paragraph does clarify that it is a question of law. And later on, the decision says, this raises the scope of 10b. And when you read the decision, that is indeed what the Court of Appeal decided. They decided what effective assistance entailed. And why? Because as the Superior Court took for granted, that there had been a suspension and the police said, okay, that's the starting point of her analysis. But she goes even further and says, at any rate, the advice given during the first nine minutes was not sufficient. That's what the Court of Appeal decided. So unlike the trial judge, like in Stevens, the there, the council had to ascertain whether there was a certain level of understanding and without that uh, there was you couldn't be satisfied that the right had been that the council had been sufficient so the 
conclusions of the Court of Appeal led to uh, the trial judge another, uh, made, uh, erred in her findings. When we looked at the findings of Judge Justice Healy, part of her judgment was in English, even though part of it was in French. Doubt that the police deliberately decided to suspend the implementation of the right to counsel after a telephone call and before the arrival of Maître Benoit. Sur quelle base le juge On what basis does just Judge Haley says that? Because the trial judge says that the police officers are not aware of the contents of the first consultation between lawyer and counsel. It's not related to the content. When Judge Haley says that there was deliberate uh, suspension of the application, that has to do with the suspension itself of the consultation, which is something retained by the trial judge. From the moment when we know that the first consultation itself was not concluded, Judge Haley considers that there was violation, there was a breach. Now, as to the other questions relating to the attitude of the police officers, the breach of a right does not necessarily require or mean that police officers had bad faith. Was there breach, yes or no? Looking at the remedy, the bad faith of police officers would be taken into account when assessing the gravity of the breach. Here, Justice Hilly doesn't say that the police officers had bad faith necessarily. What he says is that they prevented continuation of the consultation. The judge never makes any comment about that. Maybe because he, she, she considers that there's no breach. She doesn't look into 24-2. In her opinion, the fact that the police officers refused continuation of the consultation is not significant because the first nine minutes were sufficient in her opinion, they were sufficient to advise the respondent. She never says, well, she doesn't conclude that the police officers tried to facilitate the consultation. It's a fact that is not disputed. The police officers changed their opinion and they did not inform the detainee of that change. Neither did they inform the client or the accused of what the lawyer wanted to do. It has no impact ultimately. The Court of Appeal was justified in raising that because it wasn't disputed. But it has an impact on the case. It has an impact on the legal findings that arise. Ms. Adid, what you're saying is that lots of facts are not disputed in the case. The problem is with the legal findings that were drawn from those facts. But the fact that there was a telephone call that the lawyer spoke to the detective surgeon and he said no problem, he spoke to the accused, the fact that afterwards the lawyer was informed that the police officers had changed their mind and that he would not have the opportunity to have another consultation with the accused, none of that is disputed except for the fact that the accused were not informed of the subsequent decision taken by the police officers. So for you, it's simply a matter of law. Yes, 
there is little or no disputed facts, either facts that were retained by the different courts or facts that were not disputed or, or discussed in the various analyses. If we look at all the facts that are summarized, if we take them for gospel truth without necessarily looking at the stenographic notes, we can rightfully conclude that the Court of Appeal saw that there was a breach in the solicitor-client uh, consultation. This is very different from Sinclair. It's m closer to Stephens. Dussault is somewhere between the two cases, as Judge Healy said. Are you referring to Stephens? That's a decision that um, Justice Kazira was involved in. But in that case, there was no consultation. Is the civil lawyer who was called, so clearly there was no relevant consultation. We are not talking about that here. You are correct. Justice Haley says that we are somewhere between Stevens and Sinclair because in Sinclair there's the first consultation that was completed and they, they are wondering whether there should be another one. But in the other case, there was, a f it was, there was no first consultation because it was a civil case. But in this case, we are somewhere between the two. And I'm coming back to what Judge Healy says. The first consultation started. So implementation started, but it was partial because the first consultation was not completed. So we are somewhere between the two. Conversely, looking at the facts, excluding what you've mentioned, uh, Justice Wagner, it is closer to Stevens. The facts of this case are much closer to Stevens than Sinclair. In Stevens as well, the detainee was kept in ignorance. There was some ambiguity. Some corrections were not made. In this case, Mr. Dussault was saying that he wasn't sure whether the lawyer will call back, but he's given the impression that he's been abandoned by his lawyer. So somewhat, the relationship is undermined. It's a natural effect. It's not even a matter of intention. So I cannot even tell you whether the police approach was done out of bad faith, but their approach had consequences on the rights of the accused. And, and this is misapprehension of the right to counsel. So you, you are calling, you say the, the police officers were re reluctant. Yes. And that reluctance is, a, is the cause of that deliberate decision that was referred to by the Chief Justice. When the Court of Appeal talked about interrupting the consultation, what do you say to the description of the facts by the Court of Appeal in paragraph 24? Is that fair? Measures including misrepresentations to the appellant to prevent the continuation of the consultation. When I hear misrepresentation, that is false representation. 
actively instead of reluctance is there a difference in scope there I would say that when it comes to the breach itself the fact that the police officers lied or not has an impact there's a comment that they took measures including false representation that is does not necessarily lead to the findings by the Court of Appeal well it's not necessarily something that is not disputed let me give you example of the client's factum that says that police officers avoided questions that was admitted it wasn't disputed something was veiled avoided eluded we could lie by omission and it's not even about being silent about something but when the respondent asks questions those questions are avoided I understand what you're saying and I am not the one who will say that there's a distinction between re uh, reluctance and false representation but I think you are going beyond what you said a while ago you said it's not about bad faith now you're talking about bad faith it's not that I said there was no bad faith I'm saying I am not in a position to arrive at that conclusion. We can make observations about the attitude of the police officers and we can conclude whether or not there is bad faith. Well, I don't want to... Well, when the Court of Appeal talked about false presentation and deliberate uh, measures, you are saying it's not necessarily bad faith. What is being said here is that if we try to understand where is the problem? Is it a case about police conduct caused by bad faith or is it a case of mistakes where the police officer suggested that there was no problem, consultation was going to continue so where do you stand exactly I'm asking the question not to make life difficult for you but from my reading of the case when we read the Court of Appeal decision and the trial uh, court decision we have two different factual perspectives in the Court of Appeal, I see a case about bad faith and suspicious behavior by the Crown. Whereas for the other court, the state did everything it had to do. Yes, maybe it avoids certain situations, but not to the extent, and this is important, not to the extent of being considered bad faith. Let me refer you to the Court of Appeal decision, paragraph 35. Infinite last sentence it stated and I'm reading the translation is not necessarily bad faith on their part but rather an a deliberate attempt to obtain a strategic advantage by exploiting the right to counsel to judge Ely police approach though deliberate is not necessarily born of bad faith but it is still a breach and that is my position I respectfully submit the finding, the bad faith finding is engaged by 24B. 
what the respondent is submitting is that the police officers gave agreement, changed their mind, and omitted to inform the respondent of that situation and hid everything that happened afterwards. You say, for example, that the trial judge does not arrive at that conclusion, but the trial judge does not say neither that the police officers did not hide anything, nor did they elude the questions that were asked by the detainee. But there was uh, an expectation that they would be seen, that the detainee would be seen, but it wasn't bad because the initial legal advice was sufficient to meet the obligation under 10B. So there's no breach. She didn't go any further in her comments as to the attitude of the police officers because, in her opinion, there was no breach. My question is that this is really that the case is not about bad or good faith. Maybe it wasn't necessary. It wasn't necessary to talk about false representations because even to go by your argument, this deals with the fact that at this specific moment there was no problem and that's the crux of the matter as you said yourself in your factum. The rest are simply minor details. Yes, indeed, Justice Kazira. In my opinion, the thrust of the matter, the turning point is the acceptance that was provided. We can believe legitimately so, and Mr. Benoit says so, that if the police officers had simply said no, when the request was made as to whether he could come and meet the respondent, he could have simply continued providing explanations. He says that he had the impression that the respondent was understanding him. Maybe he could have continued his consultation over the phone. He, he wasn't given that opportunity. There was no reason to believe that there was going to be a change in opinion. And then from that time when he was given the go-ahead, he decided to simply go back to the phone to tell the respondent that he was going to come to the police station. What could he have said any further? Because uh, he said, I don't know what to say. I'd, I'd rather say nothing. He told me not to say anything. What was missing from the advice? Well, all the advice about how to exercise his right. It can't be claimed, and this is the second part of the right to counsel, you cannot claim that it's enough for an, uh, an individual who gets detained. They shouldn't just get a banal, routine explanation when the police read them their rights. The, the, the detainee is then aware that they have the right to remain silent, but nothing's been further explained. Uh, they haven't, it hasn't been explained why you might choose to remain silent. It hasn't been explained at that point why it might be advantageous to speak and to cooperate. Uh, nothing had been explained at that point about legal police questioning techniques, about the fact that the police might lie to you, about the case they have against you. So that's all information you need in order to be able to make an informed, 
choice about whether or not to cooperate. And in Sinclair, it says the right covers more than just a generic routine caution, like what the police give you. The right to counsel goes further. And that, but in this case, Mr. Dussault, all he got was routine warnings, uh, routine cautions, uh, and we're talking about uh, a counsel is defense counsel is has a constitutional role to play. Uh, lawyers are officers of the court, officers of justice. This is an experienced, knowledgeable person, and that's why you don't call your neighbor or your sister-in-law, uh, who's a biologist, uh, you call a lawyer when you've been detained, when you've been arrested, uh, because the lawyer has expertise. And it's more than just like they show in the movies, uh, that you get one call to a lawyer. The right encompasses more than just one phone call. So it's my submission that the detainee has the right to speak to their counsel. They have the right to retain and instruct counsel. And the lawyer has to be given the opportunity to do their job. They have to have an opportunity to speak to their client as much as they want. Or maybe they don't, they don't have the right to speak endlessly or for an indefinite time. They don't have the right necessarily to be physically present during questioning. But they do have rights to inform the client about the incriminating, not avoid, avoiding incriminating themselves and so on, and keeping silent. When a person's arrested, for example, for aggravated assault, and they get advice, uh, uh, and they get proper legal advice, and if the victim were to die uh, subsequently, and the charges were upgraded to murder, then the accused would have a renewed right to consultation because the advice has to suit the specific situation of the detainee. And that's why it takes different types of advice. Every lawyer proceeds differently based on their own experience, but that all has to be enabled. And in this case, this lawyer wrote to the police uh, if you want to describe this situation as ambiguous, which the appellant does, but we don't think it was, but even if it were, assuming it were ambiguous initially, it's our submission that the lawyer's note dissolves any ambiguity. The lawyer explicitly said that the consultation was, had only been partially completed. Is the concern here about uh, defense counsel abusing uh, this the system? Uh, it's this doesn't happen every day, and this lawyer wrote a note. And you have to remember too that the police had initially said, "Okay, no problem." So everything suggests that the police knew the consultation was incomplete, and it was not open to the trial judge to conclude that the right had been exhausted. I don't know if that answers your question. So the corollary to the protection is also the police duty to facilitate and not hinder 
the lawyer's role. The lawyer is retained by the client when the client says yes, when the client calls them. So the lawyer has to have some independence and you can't interfere with how counsel provides their advice to the client. And there's a limit to what the police can control and at any rate, let's not forget that it's the police who have a duty here towards the detainee and not the other way around. The confidentiality of the communication uh, between solicitor and client puts limits on what the police can control and the police can't expect the lawyer to give them full details. Of, and when the lawyer said partially, you couldn't be any clearer that the advice was not complete. It was only partial. So the police had enough information at that moment from the very beginning, but even more so when the lawyer wrote the note, they had enough information to know that the detainee needed to speak to his lawyer again. And coming back to the Court of Appeals decision, especially since there was no urgency in this situation, there was no reason to refuse as long as the detainee was in his cell, sleeping, there was no reason to refuse a meeting. The investigation was not in jeopardy and the police changed their mind without telling the detainee and he was powerless. To This might be a bit of a stretch but Justice Wagner you said at times he spoke and at times he didn't so that indicates that he understood his right but he incriminated himself at times. Does that not indicate that he didn't actually understand his right? He made choices, but they weren't informed. He wasn't aware that they could keep questioning him even after he asked to put a stop to the questioning. Uh, he didn't necessarily know that they couldn't hold him there indefinitely, that they couldn't beat him up, uh, that there were limits to what the police could do. How can he make useful, free and informed choices when he's lacking important information? Why do defense lawyers have a constitutionalized role, a recognized role, if their role is really limited to give repeating the routine standard cautions that the police have already given the trial judge didn't reject a lot of evidence all the facts that were necessary to the analysis of a 10b violation were agreed upon there's no there's no dispute as to the facts the appellant admits that the consultation was suspended or doesn't deny it anyway and it shouldn't be necessary to go any further than that. The consultation was not over, it was not complete and the lawyer has a duty to his client and it's important especially in cases 
I'm going to just stop you there. Excuse me. The appellant admits. Where do you find that? Well, the appellant argued this morning, or didn't deny, that there had indeed... I don't, don't remember who asked the question, but when it comes to, okay, no problem. Well, no, but that's far from an admission that the consultation was suspended. The appellant's theory of the case, the appellant's argument... Uh, the, the, the appellant didn't uh, move, didn't off their pos original position. The trial judge said, and was of the same view that, that there was an okay, no problem, but that didn't amount to an admission. You're talking about admissions or undisputed facts. I'm really not sure you're right there. Well, the trial judge agreed that an okay was expressed and that the respondent and his counsel had an expectation that they would be able to meet at the police station. I submit that that was an agreement. And the trial judge summarized the facts and in that summary she said the respondent was aware of this agreement to meet at the police station and there was an expectation that that meeting would take place. Excuse me, I'm, I'm cutting you off. I'm not being polite but it depends what you mean by agreement. An agreement about what? An agreement that the lawyer was going to pop by the police station is one thing, but an agreement that the consultation was suspended. That's your argument, I think. That's what you're saying, that they agreed that this was merely a suspension of the consultation. And then we're getting into Sinclair. But... What agreement are you talking about exactly? I'm talking about the agreement to continue the consultation between lawyer and client at the police station. The lawyer explained that he suggested the, that they could continue in person if he preferred. The respondent answered yes. Then, they, then the police officer said, okay, no problem. Okay, can you, then the lawyer said, can you give me back to my client? Okay, and they spoke, and then the lawyer said in, in, at the end of the conversation, said, okay, I'm on my way, don't speak to anyone. Don't say anything. So is not the logical conclusion that there was an agreement that the consultation was suspended and cut off and that it would resume at the police station? Why, why else would the police officer have said, okay, no, no problem? Everyone seems to agree that when the police officer said, okay, no problem, and handed the phone back to the client for the lawyer to say, okay, I'm on my way, don't say anything to anyone, there's an agreement that the consultation will continue. So, that's what I'm talking about when I say agreement. And what comes out of the decision. The trial judge just completely disregarded that. She didn't really deal with the fact that there had, an, had been an agreement. She says that paragraphs 152, 153, and 170, uh, she does address those facts, but she pushes them aside and attaches no legal consequences to that agreement. 
But what happened during the first nine minutes of the conversation? Was that enough to constitute uh, to th the right to counsel? That's what she decided. That was her decision. She didn't consider that they shouldn't meet again, but she considered that whether or not they continued the consultation, the eight or nine initial minutes were enough. After Detective Shiquan said, no problem, then the lawyer spoke to his client again, and then after that, the investigators asked Detective Shiquan to inform Mr. Benoit that he would not be allowed to meet with his client. So can we, can we deduce from that that there was an agreement, and then after there was a change, a change, the police changed their mind, and then the police officer was supposed to inform Mr. Benoit that ultimately he wouldn't be able to meet his client. Is that what happened? No, prison is not fact. Exactly. That's also a fact that is not disputed on the file. The mere fact of calling back Mr. Benoit to say you cannot see your client, it doesn't reflect that there wasn't an agreement. Let me repeat, the trial judge says this there was an expectation that they would see each other. So, to be fair to the trial judge, I understand that it's your job uh, to argue. And the trial judge says, to go by the evidence before me, the accused says that he understands his right to silence. The accused says, that, or rather never says that he didn't understand his right to silence. He never says he doesn't understand his rights. And that is why he responds to the police officers that he understands his rights when he's arrested. And he also says that the evidence shows that the reason for which the lawyer goes to the police station is that he had the impression that his client had not necessarily understood everything. But what the judge does this, looking at the testimony of the lawyer and Mr. Dussault, is that she concludes that the accused understood his rights. He's not the one who wanted the lawyer to come, even though the lawyer told him that he will be coming to the police station, not to necessarily complete his work, but to make sure that he had understood well. That's what the judge does, and the Court of Appeal seems to ignore all that. The trial judge draws a number of uh, conclusions. He understood his right to silence. Secondly, suggests that the impression of the lawyer, who is the only other interlocutor of this case because no one else is privy to the consultation that they had, says, I gave, I've given him advice, but I have the impression that he doesn't compute nor process the information I'm giving him. So I want to come. And they say, yes. So the client has accepted that he come. The client or accused has mandated the lawyer to come to the police station. I think we have that in the summary that the respondent said yes. Silence was sufficient, the impression of the lawyer, that wasn't significant. And 
the rest of the information that he had to provide is not covered by 10b. That is how the analysis uh, made by the trial judge can be summarized. What I do submit is that, on the one hand, from the time when the client mandates his lawyer to come to the police station, it's the desire of the client. Secondly, the impression of the lawyer, and it's clearly detailed in Stevens, communication should be bilateral. If the lawyer has the impression that what he's saying is not being understood, that it serves no purpose and he's not able to transmit the information, there is no communication, and that he's the only one who is better placed to know that because the police officers have no idea what transpired during the conversation. He's the only one who can say, I have the impression he doesn't understand. And that is why, well, it's not a future reason. That is why I am offering that I travel and come to the police station. So when I get there, I will do a number of things. I will make sure that he has understood what I explained already. I will answer his questions. And that is part of legal assistance. I will complete the information on the right choices he has to make. He has to make. And I will tell him how police interactions can occur and how information can be sought from him. So if legal counsel is to allow the client not to incriminate himself and that he has a choice to cooperate or not, he has to know when he's under investigation and when everything he says will be held against him. He also should be told that lies could be told him. So how can he make an informed choice when he doesn't even know that police officers could lie or invent evidence? So from the time when he's deprived of all this information, is he not left to himself? Is he not being trapped? Because that's the effect of the go-ahead that was given. The lawyer was, the lawyer and the respondent were trapped, the lawyer, because he wasn't able to provide the legal assistance he wanted to provide, did not know that uh, the police officers uh, will change their minds. He could have acted differently. And the respondent as well, because from the time he mandates his lawyer, he expects the lawyer to come and meet him, answer his questions, and provide him with more information. Therefore, the fact that the respondent did not ask during the first 30 minutes whether the lawyer did not arrive is not lack of diligence. The lawyer had communicated the information to the client and it was retained by the trial judge and that is a fact that should be considered. There was an expectation that the client would see the lawyer and that is a fact that cannot be ignored. It is accepted in the trial court up to this point and that is what changes the entire dynamic of the case and that is what led to all the problems that we are faced with today. It is a domino effect. Irrespective, without that, this case would not be before here. We would have been, been, been dealing with an entirely different case because the lawyer would have been allowed to continue providing legal assistance or could have acted differently if the police officers had said no.
then we could have raised the other issues. I see I have one minute left. If you have a question, I will answer that. If not, I will refer you to my factum. Out of fairness, this is a question I put to your learned friend from the Crown. We realized that in this case, it took Judge Healy 17 months to arrive at her decision following yeah. the hearing. That is surprising, particularly the time when we're trying to speed up uh, court cases. So my question, do you know why it took 17 months for a 23-paragraph decision to be rendered? No, Justice, uh, Chief Justice Wagner, I do not know why. All I can say is that at the request of my client, my client himself tried to take a number of measures to find out what the case was, and we were simply being told that the case was still being, was still under advisement. No, I don't know. Thank you, counsel. Anil Kapoor. is a uh, fundamental importance to my clients' membership. Uh, they're the folks that field these calls day in and day out from detained persons. It's very important to my clients' membership to understand what it is they're required to do, what can they do, what are the limits, and what, as I say, are their obligations. There are two fundamental issues that arise. What does the detainee need to know? And how is he going to get that information? So to deal with the first question, which is the what question, what does a detainee need to know? It is important to contextualize what we are discussing this morning. The right to counsel in this context is in service of the right to silence. It, is, it serves that master. We have in our right to silence jurisprudence since Singh and arguably even before, uh, where there has been the exercise of the right to counsel, we presume as a matter of constitutional law that the detainee is vested with all the crucial information she needs to make an informed decision on whether to speak to the police. That is a presumption. What it, what it doesn't tell us though, is what is the information? We know from Sinclair uh, or, or before in Mananin and other cases, but in Sinclair, for example, this court cites Mananin, and in the decision, paragraph 26, says, equally important than being told that you don't have to speak to the police is being told how to exercise your right to silence. It's the how that I want to address you on. And in particular, in, in Sinclair itself, at paragraph 50, this court noted that the initial advice of legal counsel will be geared to the expectation that the police will seek to question the detainee. So that tells us that what we are concerned about is what's going to happen in the interrogation room. And in paragraph 60 of St. Clair, in the last sentence, this court notes that you don't need to have a second consultation, this court notes, because there's a concern about a police tactic in the interview, say lying or gradually revealing evidence, you don't need a second interview, a second consultation. 
Well, the reason you don't is because that information should be in the initial consultation. In other words, in the initial consultation, the detainee needs to know that when he or she asserts her right to silence, the police do not have to respect it. I dare say that people on the street would not appreciate that fact. Also, broadly speaking, and it's set out in paragraph seven of our factum, that the police can lie to you. I dare say that people on the street wouldn't understand that either. In the morning, it's very, very important that you are able to deliver that kind of information. Now, what's the modality? Typically, it's done by phone. And for the vast majority of detainees, that's sufficient. But you will have detainees where counsel will want to go and see them to talk to them in person. That I, I put to you that if that is the rule, counsel will say on each and every occasion that I want to see them. I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's essentially substituting the obligation. Uh, respectfully, um, I don't think that's fair. Most counsel won't want to leave their home at two o'clock in the morning, drive down to the police station. Um, most of the time, the advice will be delivered and counsel will act ethically to deliver the advice. Most people will get the advice by phone. I am talking about that rare situation where you're dealing with a compromised detainee, say an autistic person, who doesn't quite understand what you're talking about on the phone. And, you and you're concerned to discharge your ethical responsibilities that you need to see him in person. And in particular, directs you to rule 8.1 of the rules of conduct, the law society rules of conduct that govern our profession in Ontario. And there's similar rules across the country. That, that we are obliged by our rules of conduct to communicate with a client commensurate with their sophistication, commensurate with their need to make a fully informed decision. And that might mean, Justice Rowe, that you go in person, but you don't go when you've got a guy from the Hells Angels or a drug lord, but you go when you've got a, a vulnerable accused who needs that kind of assistance. We should permit that. The Constitution should allocate protection for that person. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Mary Springgrate. Oui. Donc, uh... Yes. Good morning, Chief Justice, Justices. The purpose of our intervention today is to underscore and re-centralize the importance of 10B, of preserving the relationship of confidence between a solicitor and a client. When we talk about the purposes of 10B, we often talk about the need to restore a balance between a detainee and the state at a time of great vulnerability for the detainee. We also talk about the psychological uh, aspects, the lifeline that counsel represents to a detainee, and those goals are met not only through the lawyer's advice, but it also requires, it part, it ba it, it's based on the premise that the detainee has to be able to have confidence in their counsel. They have to have confidence in the advice their lawyer gives them. In other words, advice is worthless to a detainee if the detainee is led to believe that his lawyer is not competent or is saying whatever. And the court has recognized this reality because they have recognized that the 
usefulness of the advice goes hand in hand with confidence in that advice. And we see this in Broyle, Burlingham, and Sinclair. And in this context, there's reason to follow the statement of principle in Burlingham, which prohibits the police from undermining that relationship of confidence through denigration or disparagement. And there should be a broad and generous interpretation given to that. And perhaps I'd just like to make a few points that were raised by you, Chief Justice Wagner, and also by Justice Kazerer. And it's not necessarily to impugn anyone's motives, but it can simply be concluded that the police, the conduct of the police undermined that confidence. There's not necessarily any need to establish any motive. And in one case, this is whether it's in the, this is a passage from a case, it, it doesn't matter whether it was intentional or just in effect, if that was the result. So you don't have to find that there was bad faith on the part of the police in order to find a violation of 10B. It can be the conduct of the police may even, even if it inadvertently undermines the client's confidence in their lawyer. And I would also submit that when we're talking about statements of principle in the, the statements in Burlingham, it might be appropriate to specify that it's not necessary for the undermining or the disparagement to be verbal. It can be implied from the conduct of the police. And it's not necessary either for it to reach the level of explicit, repeated undermining and uh, denigration in Burlingham. It, it might be appropriate for this court to clarify that it doesn't have to reach that level. And finally, we're of the view that a signal should be sent from this court that police strate strategies and tactics are unacceptable when it comes to the implementation of the right to counsel. Now, we accept that there is some room for police tactics in the interrogation room, but we would submit that those tactics have no place when it comes to implementing the right or respecting the right to counsel. And finally, I don't have much time, but I wanted to point out that allowing the detainee to believe that his lawyer has not kept a commitment, that has adverse consequences that are foreseeable, consequences for the relationship of confidence with their lawyer. When you lead a person to believe that their lawyer has not kept his commitment to come and meet with him at the police station, it's quite foreseeable that the client will feel abandoned. He's asking, where is my lawyer? What am I supposed to do now? Uh, and it, so it would certainly create a feeling of abandonment and it might cause the detainee to question everything his lawyer said to him about everything. So I see my time is up and I'll, I'll wrap it up there. Thank you. Mr. Chef, Mr. Chief Justice, judges, right away we will 
focus on effective communication. In our opinion, that is what should have been retained by this court in Sinclair. The majority recognized that. So let me refer you to paragraph 24 of Sinclair. This is advice that should be suited to the specific situation of the detained. And this is advice that targets the rights and obligations of the detainee, as well as the way of exercising those rights. In Sinclair, we looked at that. Now, this goes beyond mere advice of the right to silence. Let's look at Manyanyon in 87. This court talked about effective communication. It was revisited by the dissident judge Bini in Sinclair who talked about meaningful assistance. We also saw meaningful and effective communication. The Court of Appeal in Stevens talked about effective communication for legal assistance in Dussault. In this case, we see the same term used in La France that you will hear the same term will be used in paragraph 47. Let me refer you to Bajero, which is in my condensed uh, book. The term meaningful assistance is used again. In Sinclair, where I'll be, on which I'll be focusing, paragraph 35 in Sinclair, this court used the two extremes of the spectrum. It cannot be limited to a simple superficial consultation on the one hand, and the, looking at the other extreme, it doesn't allow for consultation throughout the police interview. But between the two, there has to be effective consultation. I submit that it's important for this court to look into that. How far should the defense counsel go in the representations or advice he's giving the client? I respectfully submit that in all cases, and that is the practice we use amongst our members, we need to look at the specific situation. They don't all have the same level of sophistication. Some clients are already known, we've dealt with in the past, others are not known at all. If somebody's arrested for an offense, we have to, the lawyer can assess the level of understanding. There are situations where it's clear that consultation wasn't complete. In the Stevens ruling, that was the case. A civil lawyer was brought in and not a defense lawyer. There are other cases, so we should not limit ourselves to specific cases. Looking at different circumstances, the police officers would realize, looking at different indications, the lawyer, the police officers, the detained, they may realize that there was no effective communication because that's the objective of 10B. There's all sorts of information that should be assessed looking at a specific case. We are not claiming that it should cover everything. But a defense lawyer, how far should a defense lawyer go? It's not yet clear. We submit that it should go beyond the right to silence. The detainee should be prepared, prepared to face or to cooperate or not with the police officers.
I'm sorry, uh, Mr. Michael. So, do you think that the Sinclair lessons are sufficient to give guidelines as to what we should understand when we look, talk about the right to counsel, or should more be added? In my humble opinion, I think if you have the opportunity to add to that and provide greater explanations as to how far the defense lawyer should go, that should help. It doesn't mean that it has to be a method that will apply to all circumstances, but how far should the defense lawyer go? From my reading of Sinclair, there were two extremes. It's not just the right to silence, and it doesn't go as far as consultations up to preparation of the case. But how far should we go? I think that a diligent lawyer should advise his client on whether or not he chooses to cooperate with the police officers. It's not simply about a video statement. It could have to do with uh, police investigations, and different ones may apply depending on the circumstances. Thank you. Reply, Mr. Tremblay or Ms. Boucher. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. In a few words, I would like to come back to what my learned friend said, seeing that Mr. Dussault was kind of trapped or was not in the right frame of mind. But we heard that he understood and made strategic use of that. And Judge Rowe, in another case, says that there's a risk to in modifying the current framework if we were to focus on the content of the exchange or discussion because the police officers are not aware of that. The current framework doesn't need to be changed. If there's an objective change, the police officers need to act accordingly. Police officers could presume that legal assistance is adequate when they do not know for sure. They can presume. So there's no practical significance in changing the framework. You said, you said that the accused was weakened. We see that at the beginning, he doesn't understand why his counsel is not there. He asked me to give my name, and he told me that if he's not here, I should be silent. Why did he say that? So I feel um, I've been abandoned. And after that, you say he went back to his cell. When you say that the Court of Appeal said the detainee felt he was alone. I do not see any finding about the credibility of his decision. So how can you say that that statement wasn't justified? Comme vous l'avez dit, c'est la juge de la cour. I wasn't the one who said that. It was the Superior Court judge who said that. He was his role to draw the necessary conclusions. The conclusion was that he was in control 
and he was making strategic use of the information. So there was no weight given to those sentences that were made at the beginning of a four-hour interview. The detainee never mentioned that. That was a conclusion made by the first judge. And that is why I asked that matter to be reestablished. Justice Kazira has one last question for you. Mr. Tremblay, your colleague, Madam Hadi, talked a lot about the, the agreement, the famous exchange between Mr. Shikwan and Mr. Benoit. Let me come bring you back to paragraph 20 of your factum. In paragraph 20, you mentioned the conversation with the investigator. You mentioned that Detective Sergeant Shikwan told the lawyer that there was no problem. And you go even further than that. You continue explaining that the mobile phone number was provided. He handed over the phone to the respondent. And uh, let me take you to the last sentence I would like you to explain. At no point was there an agreement made between the detective and the lawyer that he could meet his client in person at the police station. And you take us back to the evidence that I looked at. I would simply like to hear how you explain that statement that you make in paragraph 20. The statement in itself is that, in our opinion, there's no agreement because Mr. Shikwan doesn't say, yes, you can come to the police station, you can meet your client, and you can talk with him. He says, we, there's no problem, but let's put things in context. He's surprised by that request. He says, okay, there's no problem. But as I argue, there's ambiguity. The ambiguity is corrected during the second call. And when my colleague says, if Mr. Benoit had been told that he would not be allowed to see his client. Maybe he would have completed his consultation. Why didn't they give him a categorical no? So there's some ambiguity. So why didn't he say he had not completed his consultation when he was told no? My colleague also says that an inference can be drawn that advice was not complete, completed. All we know is that assistance was partial, but all is, all of that comes from the lawyer, nothing from the detainee to make us believe that assistance was incomplete. So there was no agreement in the continuum and assistance was complete. Thank you, counsel. The court will take this matter under advisement. Thank you for your comments. Of Her Majesty the Queen against uh, Nigel Vernon La France. Uh, the court will take uh, 30 minutes a break, so I would ask uh, the attorneys to remain at our disposal. Thank you.